Hello and welcome back to another episode of Reptile and Chill. Unfortunately, I didn't want to do a podcast this week because I'm currently... Well, I've just got back off holiday. Whilst we're recording this, I should be on holiday, but I've got to do it early. And You're not allowed any holidays, Hoss. I, I just... Uh... By order of the management, me and Danny... Whoa, uh, whoa, no, whoa. no holidays for uh, for the producer. Oh. <laughs> Can I have like a rest day, like like for mental health? No. What you? Oh, what? Do you know what? That's hard. It's hard to say no after he's just put that one in there. <laughs> no. <laughs> oh no, it's easy. No. Because well, no, okay. okay, I'm going. You get, I'm you, going. Get, you get precisely bugger all. No, I, I need. Oh, so you I don't need do to a talk. lot anyway. I need to do talk. You? I need to talk to you guys like, like seriously. What have we got? Go on. Okay, so me and Mike went to an event last night. It was wicked. Mm-hmm. Danny got Nick let Turner. down again. Danny got Nick let Turner. down by Danny. No, yeah, no, I got let down because who didn't get invited? <laughs> you told us you were coming to Birmingham for the weekend. Did, did, did anyone physically invite me? Did you Did you actually send me no a No one got invited. Invite? No, it just invited happened. me at all. Right, yeah. A bunch get, of just, just, absolute right, so I've cleared out the spare room for you as well, Dan. <laughs> <laughs> right, so anyways, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to be serious. Listen, okay. fuck's sake. Right, this, is hard yeah, to, this, this is hard to talk about. <laughs> this is Reptile and Chill, by the way. <laughs> <laughs> so, obviously it was a good night, but a lot of people were on about, you know, like I can't pronounce things and I'm a bit stupid and... <laughs> There was other things about me swearing, and mm-hmm. and you swearing, Danny, and mm-hmm. I, I, I feel that the um, my feature um, pronouncing things is it, it, it um, it's affecting me. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. so I, I think for my own health, we need to stop doing it. Okay, 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 okay. No, <laughs> it's not happening. I've got my book, mate. You can you can actually stop this feature. But you've got 600 species to go through before you do. <laughs> I mean, I think you're, I think you're at precisely 548 left. Oh. <laughs> I'm going to get the book. Or until you get really good at it. Yeah. Then it if becomes you start a showing us up. Yeah, yeah, it's slightly anticlimactic, and we're like, let's get rid of this feature. It's boring now. Okay, I'll go downstairs and get the book. Hang on. Do you know oh, what though, Hoss? I think Hoss. Hoss has well, whilst he's gone, mm-hmm. I think he's got a bit lazy. Yeah. So he's just well, he's just started to sort of like say the word, you know, try and pronounce the the, the name, and then that's it. Then he's not talking about the snake, where it's from, what it feeds on, what it looks yeah. like. He yeah. has got lazy, and you know, the whole reason for this feature is to you know, educate people. That's true. It is very, very true. I totally agree. I'm and I'm I'm shocked and surprised that Hoss got lazy. <laughs> Do you know what? If he doesn't come back and he thinks we're gonna pause and wait round for him, he's got another thing coming. I can do the news article and he'll be right back by before I finish that, that's for sure. <laughs> I believe you were incorrect. Ah, he's back. Did, Phelps. You, did you say nice things about me? Yeah. Hell no. Um Phelps. Yeah. Have you found a good one? Uh, do you know what? Sorry, I'm turning away from the mic here, looking at the book. So. Actually, you know, you know what? I need moral support on this. Um, I'm bringing the guest in before we do this. You ah. can do it. Get you bring the guest in. Do it, Mister Roland. He had to get that in quick. 
before I uh, before I said the wrong yeah. name, didn't you? Yeah. <laughs> they said, uh, "Danny, let us down again," because he was supposed to say, "Come on down." Come on down. Well done, you thank you. Oh, edit, that. <laughs> edit that in. That was the worst intro ever, wasn't it? Oh yeah. I feel I feel feel slightly let down by it, guys. But you know, hey, we'll, I'll, I'll take what I can get. Roland, do you know what, mate? You should have let me do it. I did, apart from getting the name wrong last week, it was absolutely phenomenal oh, introduction. It was. It, it, it was, was pristine. It, it was almost like. It was almost like. You know, do you know when? Uh, let's say, say you've just won the lottery, and <laughs> someone comes along and says, mm, "Actually, due to a technicality, you can't have this." That's pretty much what it was yeah. like. It was like really. It was like huge and really amazing. There was this big old build up, and then he goes. How are you, Ryan? It at the end. <laughs> <laughs> Got, like, guys, what? do you like do you like suspense? Do I like suspenders? Well, them as well. Do you like suspense? Oh. Uh huh. Yeah, yeah. What you ready? Mm-hmm. Keep waiting. Mm-hmm. Keep waiting. Mm-hmm. Oh, God. oh, he's on holiday mode, isn't he? <laughs> the arsehole's on holiday mode. Tragic, Hoss. Tragic. Ah. That's, I could, I could, that's why I could never work in an airport. You know, all them people all in that happy mood just about to go on holiday and they're all drinking <laughs> beer at 7 oh. o'clock in the morning without yeah, a but then, to be the honest, But then I'm, you see the people coming back and they're like... Oh, back. To, to yeah. be honest, I don't like airports. And it's not flying. I'm fine with flying. I'm not scared of flying. I'm not claustrophobic. I'm all too much. That. Too much walking? If, no, that's fine. <laughs> you have to pay for two seats. <laughs> that, yes, but... That's not why. That's not why I'm pissed off. Because everyone's like, "Oh, I'm on holiday, man! Oh, look at me, fucking my holiday!" And they don't give a fuck. They push into you. They rob your seats, and they're all bastards. I'm sorry. It's like being in Tesco's. I'm not allowed to Um, swear anymore. Sorry. Right, come on, shut up now, Roland. Gentlemen, can you do me a big favour and give the big man some moral support? Oh, absolutely. No worries at all. You can do it, Dan. <laughs> Dave, is that you? <laughs> Dave? D- Dave Clemens? Yeah, it, was, it was just saying before we was recording that uh, Roland does really sound like Dave Clemens. I don't believe you. Honestly, you can, honestly when you go back to the other, other podcast, you'll be like, oh, wow, well, that, yeah, that's uncanny. <laughs> but, but what if we're the same person? That Ooh. means we've slept together. <laughs> I think I'd remember that. <laughs> you would. Oh, you definitely would. You I personally, would. I personally don't think you would. You'd have blocked that out. Hundred <laughs> <laughs> percent. Right, Hoss. Page two hundred and And I want a full description of the snake as well, so the listeners can learn about the snake. Oh, that's stunning. Mm-hmm. That is yeah, stunning. But what is it? What is it? Rhinobothrum lentigone, lentigonosum. <laughs> lentigonosum. Where's the? Where did the second O come from? That's an I. That's an I. Stop saying O. <laughs> he can't. He physically can't. Tigano. No, fuck off. He literally cannot say it. That's hilarious. Come on then. 
A little bit of info, please. Right, it's um, it's a it's a lizard. <laughs> it's not a lizard, and it's not a fish. Right, so it's the Amazon banded snake. Um, guess where it's from? Oh, uh, I I don't know, Hoss. Please tell us. It's widely found across the northern South Americas, Venezuela to Paraguay to the Ganas to Peru, but it only inhabits tropical rainforests. Uh-huh. It likes to munch on the occasional lizard. Uh-huh. It grows between two foot and five foot. Uh-huh. Um, it's rear fanged. Uh-huh. It's pretty. It is really pretty. Really pretty. I, I, I've never seen one of these before, and they're stunning. It's a it's a species that that I have wanted to see for a very very long time. It's, it doesn't occur where where we are, but having travelled through the Americas for for many years, I've wanted to see that. That's a beautiful yeah. snake. I like its um I like its snout. I think it should be called the Amazon banded laced face snake because the it's not, it's not like lace, isn't it? The uh, pattern on the head. You can't mm-hmm. just you can't just coin snakes when, can, when it willy nilly. Look, if I can toss a coin to my witcher, I can coin whatever the fuck I want. Oh god, <laughs> we're so getting sued for that. And the Americans can change the name of snakes, can't they? It's <laughs> <laughs> a ball python. Ball python. <laughs> right, come on. Hit me number two. I'm smashing well, this one. This is how professional I am. I have chosen a snake uh, that comes from Guatemala. Go on. Uh, oh, yeah. Uh, it's page 294. Mm-hmm. 294. You know, I had to read that just to make sure it was from Guatemala because I had to piss myself laughing. Oh, wow. And what if it wow, wasn't? Guatemala's yeah. tiny. Hello, hello there. Yep, well then. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I need a bit of beer first. I'm intrigued now. Here's, 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 here's an extra challenge for the guest. Um, once Hoss has fluffed up the binomial name, to see if the guest can get the uh, common name. <laughs> the common name. Yep. Oh, yeah, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a tough call, that is. <laughs> that, that, is that, that, that means I have to interpret what Hoss is saying. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, that's, yeah. That's, that's, that is the you hard know, part. <laughs> it's, it's, it is the hard part, but it's also a great excuse if you don't know it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> right, okay, I've, I've got this, I've got this. Uh-huh. It's, uh-huh. Tretanorhinus nigrolutus. Ah, that's a pretty good attempt. That's the, um, it, it has various names, but the one that I know it as is the orange-bellied swamp snake. Oh, Boom! Bang on the money! Right, okay, an extra brownie point if you can tell me who named it. I can't tell you who named it, but I can tell you what Tretanorhinus means. Go on. Oh, go on. So, it's, I think it, it's rooted in Greek. Um, Tretan is knife. And Rhinus is nose, and it's a reference to the slit-like nostrils that the snake has. Do you know what? I'll give you that. I'll give you that bonus point. You can have all ten. Do you just want a separate room with him, Mike? You know me. I always get a bit frisky with the guest, and I. <laughs> <laughs> right, Hoss, tell us all about it. Right, okay. So it's from Guatemala. Uh, the Honduras, Costa Rica, Panama, Colombia. Mm-hmm. Uh, it likes to munch on fish, frogs, and tadpoles. Tadpoles. 
Um, yes, you'd think so with a name like that, wouldn't you? Maybe you'd, you'd hope so, wouldn't you? It's non-venomous. It's between eight and twenty-five inches, which is a bit of a bit of a big range, I think, for such a small. Um, hmm. uh, oh, okay. That's the males get between eight and twenty-five. Look at the difference. And then the females get between twenty-two and thirty-five. So basically, those females are tick. <laughs> no, the male is the tick. No, it's tick. Oh, okay. Not 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 like a tick. They tick. What are you on about? Tick. Thick. He's he's lost. Oh, it, thick. Man. Oh. Yeah. Oh. Tragic. Um, um it, it's not. It's, <laughs> um, a tragic. Hossie's Hossie's <laughs> description is, it's not pretty. Oh, no, it is in its own little ugly, dirty kind of way. Yeah, it's not pretty at all. I would beg to differ. Helps! (laughs) I never expected that from you. It's a nice snake. I like the the light-coloured underbelly. It's nice. I think it it does depend on the photo, though, because some of the individuals that I've seen in, in Guatemala, when you look at them, they look exactly like mini anacondas. Yeah. But, you know, it's really funny because I was going to say cool. that the head is very anaconda-like. It is yeah. very, yeah. Yeah. Mm. Very, yeah. Very, the the, very, the very colours and the, and the patterns can, can be very similar yeah, to... You've, you've backed my point up as well because anacondas are bloody ugly as well. Horse. <gasps> oh, yeah, honestly, their, their, their body is great. You get to the head wow. and it's like, what's that? What? What, what, I know, I know what you mean. Yeah, no. What, what's that? I'm what, challenging what, you both what, on that. What's that? What's that beer that you you call their people? Corona. Yeah, no, yeah, Corona. No. Cronenberg. 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 Yeah. That you call people. Well, you know, you're walking down, you're driving down the road, and you see uh, what looks like a very pretty young lady as you're driving from behind. Uh-huh. And then you pass them and go, oh my god! And Corona, uh, it's sixteen sixty-four. Look, sixteen from behind and sixty-four from the front. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what? I've got a funny story about that. <laughs> I was, um, I did that once. This is, in my defence, this was a long time ago. And from the back, it looked great. I was like, oh, saw the front, and it was a guy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Not even joking. That is a true story, and I hate myself for it. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, so, before we carry on with the podcast, I need to do one thing quickly. Um, wasn't going to mention it, but I am going to mention it. So, there's some problems happening over at Belfast at the moment um, regarding basically being closed down. Um, so, there's a petition that you can sign to help that from. You know, prevent it from happening. Um, and if you go on change.org and type in Save Bristol Zoo, um, then you can sign the petition and help us. You know, um, you don't want to be doing that. You want to be uh, sign uh, uh, Save Belfast Zoo, not Bay Bristol Star. Zoo. Yeah, not Bristol. Yeah, don't listen to us. No, um, <laughs> but because I'm a muppet and I can't say things properly, the, li- the link is already on our Facebook page for that petition. Um, but yeah, save Bristol Zoo as well. Save all the zoos. Everything. Oh, 100%. All of them. If there is a Bristol Zoo, yeah. Save it. Don't, don't let it go. Did you just say if there is a Bristol Zoo? Yeah, I've never been to Bristol. What's... Bristol's got a really good zoo. Has it? Yeah. Oh, that's, that's good. Well, don't let it go. Save it. You know, sign a petition early. Fuck it. 
Yeah, man. <laughs> that is it. Um, Who's laughing in the background? It's Raymond. Have you noticed all the little crackly sounds? It's Raymond. Raymond. Ra- did you, you just say? Did you just call him Raymond? He just did. He just did a film. Oh. He did. Don't he beat you to it, mate. Do you know what? I know. You've I know. Taken all I, of Phelps's features now, all of them. I, I know. He did what I did. What I do on a regular basis. Uh, whilst I'm talking, I'm looking at different things, and I know why. Because if you listen to our podcast. Uh, Raymond, who was on the show, is uh, uh, is the is the curator. No, no. Alfasso. No, stop. No, two minutes. <laughs> <laughs> no. He's just fucking useless. <laughs> uh, to, to, to be honest, all I've got is a D and M, a D and an R on the screen for like our individual, I know, our channels. And I was like, oh, uh, well, he's not Rayman. <laughs> <laughs> What you like. Yeah, man. Anyways, um, mm. we've, got, we've got a podcast to record. We have, and... Oh, have know, we not started and, yet? <clears throat> no. It, no, we've got no, to start now. Um, and re- let's start with my amazing feature that everybody loves. Oh, my gets to talk. <laughs> well, if I'm honest with you, um, I know before I said he was getting a little bit, sort of like, a bit of a, a, a pain. He keeps on calling me up because of reason. You know, if he's got something new on the TV, oh, um, not but, again. But yeah, my granddad oh. was on the phone again um, <laughs> last night, um, and I said, "Look, this is getting ridiculous now." You know, we've mentioned you a couple of times, and, and it's gone to your head, and now you want us to mention you every single week. But <clears throat> he has done it again. He's he's actually recorded a film. Uh, that's going to be on Netflix. I'm not 100% when it's coming out, um, but it's coming out this year. And Sir David Attenborough, the absolute amazing person that he is, at 93 years old, has um, recorded a new film, and it's called David Attenborough, A Life on Our Planet. Um, it's quite an interesting um, uh, the, the sort of like uh, uh, can't get my words out uh, advertisement, and he talks about what's happening with the planet. You know how we're destroying it. He thinks that it's not too late to save the channel, uh, the planet. Um, he said we've got to work with nature, not against it. Um, and his and he, and his final statement is, and I'm going to tell you how, which. You know, it's quite impressive. Mm-hmm. So, um, if I, if I'm honest with you, uh, actually, um, James Russell, um, one of the listeners, met up with us last night at the Society, and um, he actually said, "Oh, have you seen that he's, uh, he's he's bringing out a film that's going to be on Netflix?" And I said, "Oh, I haven't." So he sent me the link. But uh, yeah, right, absolutely okay. so, incredible. So this random James Russell kid knew yeah. about your granddad's film. Before you did, I'm starting to think he's not your granddad, you know. <laughs> <laughs> I've told you the story. I grew up with a picture of him by the side of my bed, and my mum said, "That's your granddad. Yeah, you I, won't get to I, see him much." I grew up with a with a poster of Trish Stratus on my wall, but that doesn't mean that she's my mum. <laughs> Trish Stratus wrestler? No. Oh, okay, fair enough. Whatever. <laughs> Um, Why I wanted to bring it up, especially on tonight, because obviously with the guests we've got on tonight, obviously David Attenborough has travelled all around the world looking at wildlife, natural history, um, 
probably knows more about it than anyone else living on the planet. You know, at 93 years old, where he's been, what he's seen. Um, you know, I, I it, think I'm better at pronouncing binomial names, to be honest. But, yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you can't compare yourself to uh, to the Attenborough. I don't. Mate. I don't think it's a competition. I think I win. Yeah, you, you can have that, mate, if uh, if it makes you feel better. <laughs> On weight. <laughs> <laughs> you know, he struggles a little bit, doesn't he, Hoss? He, he has to feel special. <laughs> you, are, you are special, Hoss. Hoss? Hoss. <laughs> uh, and I've also I've got a bone to pick, so that's, that's the end of my feature this week, right? But I had a bone to pick because last week you missed me out. Were your feelings hurt? Yeah, missed you out. How? Well, you know, I, how didn't, you... I didn't get to do the news. I had something—a a story on pangolins. Do you know how you week. feel? Right. That's only because you just didn't bother. <laughs> no, no, no. no I, I, I can use this now. So you know, you know how you felt when you didn't do your feature last week. Yeah, that's how I feel every week when you make me do my feature. <laughs> <laughs> well, how do you think I feel? You don't get one because you're from I don't Norfolk. Even... I don't even have a feature at the minute. Yeah, I told you, move across the border, become a human, and you can have one. <laughs> become a human. I am technically a human. Many, just many, a, many, many would foot, argue that. Just a webbed foot one. <laughs> right. I, I, I think we've done enough talking um, and rambling about rubbish. And we've you've got done enough talking. Fantastic guest on tonight. Right, um, one, one question first before we start. Roland Griffin, is Peter your dad? No. Get him off. Yeah. <laughs> That's a shame. <laughs> oh. Okay. I've got one request. Can't talk about midget porn tonight. Okay. Why? Because, you know, well, we did the live show and it was like a later live show last week, didn't we? We did, yeah. And when I finished, I looked at my phone and I had a load of messages from the <laughs> wife going, Mike, shh. And it was like, shush, shush, it's too late. If you're saying midget porn, you need to be quiet. <laughs> <laughs> I personally think your kids know exactly what midget porn is already. <laughs> okay, anyways, Roland, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's good so, to be here. So, at the moment, you aren't in England. I'm not in England, no. So, so would you like no, to explain I'm... to the listeners where you are and exactly what you do. Sure thing. So at the moment, I am in Guatemala in Central America. Um, I know, but it's a dirty job and someone's got to do it, mate. You know what I mean? And I um, run an organisation called Indigo Expeditions and we run um, conservation expeditions and tours to Guatemala and are involved in reptile and amphibian conservation out here. Can I can I can I ask? You must spend an absolute fortune on planes, trains and automobiles because you're also doing your PhD at University of Kent. <laughs> <laughs> That's from Germany. <laughs> yeah, I know, luckily I don't have to go in every day. Um, <laughs> so I've I've been studying my PhD part time, which means I can do it remotely. So yeah, I, I go in about once a year when I'm when I'm in the country. 
when I'm in oh, the so, UK. So, so eff- effectively, you you live there most of the year round. Yeah, on and off. So um, last year I was I was mostly in the UK, but um, I came back out here in middle of November, and I've been out here since. So at the moment, the projects that we're working on require me to be in country rather than in the uk so, so that's, that's there, where i am is it is it is it i mean in all honesty is it just a place you just don't want to leave you just don't really want to come home do you oh mate it's um it, it feels like another home out here to me i've been working out here since 2013 yeah. um and it just it feels so wrong when i'm on the plane leaving guatemala city it just mm-hmm. um no it's not what the city itself but yeah yeah ex- exactly what what am i what am i doing why am i going back and it's not, not that there's anything wrong with the uk but it just feels right out here mm-hmm. um and the opportunity to go out and see such amazing wildlife and the landscapes out here are just stunning mm-hmm. that um yeah it's like a childhood dream come true yeah, so to be able to spend so much time here would mm-hmm. you consider yourself a nomad then um that's a really interesting question no one has ever asked me that i don't think <laughs> um, <laughs> no i wouldn't consider myself a nomad i like to have a home base um i did feel like that for a number of years when i was kind of traveling in and out of the field all the time um and not really having a base as such of my own in the uk but not having a base in in guatemala either because i would be at a field station somewhere in the middle of nowhere Mm -hmm. and i found that really um upsetting isn't quite the right word but but it 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 didn't do my mental health any good so not having some settling unsettling that's the word yeah Mm -hmm. very 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 much so um you know, when, when when we're out on expedition, there's very little in terms of um, your own private space because you're with a group all the time. Yeah. And and then when you come out of the field, that's what you you just really crave, just being able to hide away in a hole and just you know yeah. do do your thing. So not having that was was definitely very that's, unsettling. That's really interesting to hear because I'm waiting for us to actually start getting listeners, so I can, I can become a podcast executive producer and be a digital nomad um, <laughs> but, um I, I, I follow a couple of travel bloggers and stuff that you know label themselves digital nomads and like it's not the life they just do this and do that and i thought well herpin works with that you could literally travel the world her yeah work and you know but then again that's tiring and i suppose like you said you haven't you haven't got that personal space and i didn't really think about that yeah, and it's. It, 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 I think uh, for uh, certainly I used to as well have have this kind of romantic ideal that living in the, in the jungle and and getting to do this stuff every day is just like utopia, and and actually it isn't because it's really hard work when you're out in the yeah. field. Yeah. Um, it, it's non-stop, and your sleep patterns are all over the place because obviously we, with with reptiles and amphibians, a lot of the time you're out until one, two o'clock in the morning, and then by ten o'clock in the morning in the tropics, it's got too hot to be sleeping, so you're kind of just resting in this weird um, kind of stasis state, um, and and yeah, so it's it is exhausting to do it constantly. Um, yeah. And it's really nice, you know, to come come out of of of, of the forest and just relax and have some creature comforts and you know be able to go down the shops and, and go for a coffee or whatever it is just something so, that's a bit more normal so what did it take what did it take in 
Guatemala to have that base that you could um, call like a second home? Um, I've got some very good friends who, who at the moment let me stay in one of their spare rooms. Mm-hmm. Um, so that gives me a base that I can use when I'm not in the field. But ultimately, um, I, will, I spend you know two or three months at a time in the field um oh, at various wow. points you've kind of adapted you've kind of learned that almost being in the field is the home is is the second home yeah so yeah so being in the field is where i want to be but being able mm-hmm. to come out and have have that same place where i've got my clothes and my books and and, yeah. and whatever that that um that really changed how the whole thing would work ultimately what I'm moving to would be to have you know a, a, an apartment or something um out of the city where i can go and do that and be yeah. self-sustained but you know we'll get to that bit as we get to it roland when you say out in the field i take it you're not camping out in the field and and you're probably staying in um accommodation that the that the, the tourists and guests are uh, 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 staying in yeah that's correct so usually we will either stay um in a in a biological station so a research facility that's in the, the location where we're doing our research or um education centers and things like that oh okay that's a little bit different i was thinking ah, oh, look he's making out you know he's in the field but really he's living a a, a lush life in a hotel <laughs> five-star <laughs> hotel <laughs> with the swimming pool and that no, no, not, 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 not quite that, no. I, 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 was talking I feel to, like you sort of just rough it wherever you can. You see, I was much. talking to a, a, someone last night about that, about, like, it'd be great to go and do herping trips. And they went, oh, yeah, and you you all camping lately. You know, you'd be able to do that with her. And I was like, nah. I was just like, there's things that can kill you and bite you in the jungle. Yeah. I ain't sleeping yeah. under a tarp. I'd, I'd, I'd want, like, a four-season, like, nuclear-proof tent. <laughs> and but even so, then you'd have to be careful because shit gets in there yeah, unless, <laughs> unless, unless like a pangolin wants to like come and cuddle up next to me whilst I'm sleeping that that's fine I can deal with a pangolin you, you've, got, you've got standards right <laughs> yeah like, so so I think with, with our with, with what Indigo does we are I think a lot of people um, can feel scared or intimidated by the idea of doing field work like it's one step too far um, or they feel like they don't have the necessary skills to be able to do that. So what I wanted to do was create something that is open to everyone, regardless of your skill set. All you need to to have is a willingness to get involved and to learn and to contribute to something bigger than yourself. See, so I told you I can go because you didn't mention weight. <clears throat> no, we don't have weight limits. We don't. We don't. Ah, have, we, we don't have. Technically, uh, uh, <clears throat> technically, Harsey did. He said you have to have a willingness to contribute to something bigger than yourself. <laughs> yeah, that ain't happening, is he asked? <laughs> that, is, that is limiting you big time. I'm, I'm impressed. That was sharp. That was, man. Right, that, yeah, that was quick. I'm, I'm that was feeling, quick. I'm feeling on the ball today. You know, you know what? <laughs> it's quite funny, actually, because you've just complimented him on that. I texted him that joke just so we could read it out and do it. Well done. <laughs> that, that, was, that was some quick reading. I need, to check, I need to check, make sure he actually didn't. No, no, he didn't. <laughs> <laughs> so we can come on to sort of like the, what 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 you're doing out in in Guatemala, but I think we should go back a little bit because um, I know in the past you've done some 
uh, volunteering work with Amphibian and Reptile uh, groups. You know what? I think we need to take it back further than that, mate. Like, oh, all right, Chris Newman. Take it back you're, you're, all the way. You're, you're making an assumption that I can remember further than that. <laughs> <laughs> well, f- firstly, we'd like to know what your favourite colour is. Oh, God. Ooh, that's a good question. Orange. Good choice. Oh, that's a vibrant. Yeah, well, okay. Uh, favorite big, big cereal. Big fan of vibrant colours. Favorite cereal. Vibrant colours. Well, do we like favorite? Do we get cereal. cereal? Do we get cereal in Guatemala? Oh yeah, we get cereal in Guatemala. Um, oh, that's a really good question. I really like a good a good kind of oatmeal porridge with um, with raisins and cinnamon and stuff like see, that. Oh, I can see proper good stuff your, that is. Your healthy stuff. I, yeah, I, I yeah, can tell man. that. Okay, so most important question: What was your first reptile? Oh, now that's a good good question. My first reptile was a garter snake. Oh, yeah. So what, was, yeah what, that was why does no one ever say king cobra? <laughs> <laughs> it's to probably fair, a good garters, thing, right? Yeah, oh yeah, hundred percent. Garters were quite popular um, in that sort of era, weren't they? They sort of came in, got real popular, and then sort of fizzled out again. And now they're yeah. starting to get there again yeah I, I mean i think so this was back in the i guess what would it be mid 90s mm-hmm. and um i'd always you know been into snakes from a very very early age like the age of eight and not really thought any more about it, it was into natural history and everything else and then i got to like this period in my life i was like i really want to you know start keeping an animal i was heavily asthmatic at the time so all of the furry stuff was was out of the window and so we we sat down as a family and started talking about you know what 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 are the options and we came to snake and i think back then all of the information that you could get were from difficult to source american books mm-hmm. which all said garter snakes are the, the your, your best starter snake and i think there was a reason for that and part of it was they were easily accessible to americans to just walk out and go grab, and grab yeah. one out of the wild um and that translated over to the uk that garter snakes were the the best starter snake i th- at the time looking at it disagree with that because my garter snake was a complete psycho <laughs> I'd go in I would go it was like a baptism of fire I would go in to to, to, to change the water bowl and the thing would be trying to trying to eat my hand wow. um, it, it was an incredible I mean I loved it. It, it it was it was amazing and it really kind of helped formulate that interest in in ecology and that wider field looking at mm-hmm. what you needed to provide for for the animals to fuel what you do now yeah absolutely um but you know now we've got access to th- things like corn snakes which i would say are a much better starter snake for someone mm-hmm. than, a, than a garter snake mm-hmm. yeah yeah mm-hmm. okay, and, so- and food wise as well you know uh, yeah yeah way easier yeah. To, to give them a proper a, a diet that's healthy for them and then, yeah you know, Got, back back then, no one thought about re- really the dietary requirements of garter snakes. So you know, you just treated them like any other snake. Okay, so- yeah, I think I think now they're I think now they're pretty much you know all all the same, aren't they? You you can easily access good diets of pretty much any snake these days. But yeah, back then, um, a, a snake that you know lived on a rodent diet would have been a lot easier. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Okay, so you, obviously you went through 
your first snake, your first two snakes, your first three snakes, and then various other things. You more than likely had the collection and done all that nonsense. Not nonsense, I but did, all that yes. sort of stuff. So what yeah, brought absolutely. you into the line of work that you do now? What made you want to go out into the, the wilderness and, and seek these animals? That's a, uh, another really good question. So, um, See, all my questions a, are good, if you notice. I know, it's, I have. It's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's quite, quite astounding, really. Um, I'm impressed. Yeah. Um, so, as a kid, I was always, you know, grew up on, on a diet of David Attenborough and Natural World and all of those kinds of things. We always used to go for walking holidays as, as, a, as a family. So we were always getting out into nature and, and, and everything else. And it was, it's a long story, really. So I, I went to university, studied ecology, dropped out, went off and did something very, very different for a few years, and then went back again when I realized that actually reptile and amphibian type things was what I was really interested in and I wanted to make a go of it again. And then during that time, I started getting involved in uh, reptile and amphibian groups um, and, and doing volunteering in the UK. Um, I took my first trip um, to Peru, to the tropics, um, and it was an experience on that particular trip that really, I, I, I'm getting goosebumps thinking about it now. It was the first snake I've ever found in the wild. And it was our first day in, in the jungle. And we were walking along a trail and I spotted a snake and it was a bright green viper called the Western Stripe Forest Pit Viper. And wow. I couldn't I couldn't speak for about three hours. I couldn't string a sentence together. It was just absolutely um just so overwhelming was it just and, surreal as well because obviously growing up watching these type of animals on on documentaries and then you're actually seeing one with your own eyes oh it's um it, it was complete that whole experience that first time in a in a rainforest which is just such this immense thing to to witness um was was just unbelievable um totally mind-blowing and then yeah that on top of everything else was just i i, I couldn't even say there's a snake it was just like stop uh, 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 <laughs> was about all i could imagine i i could manage you know um and that really solid really solidified yeah this is this is really what what i want to do um and then the next step in that was um, we were speaking about about Paul Greg Smith earlier. Um, I went on one of his trips in 2008 to look for King Cobra in India, and I met some amazing people. You know who you also know Adrad from from Birmingham Nature Centre and, and a few others who remain friends today. And it was being in that group of people um, looking for snakes in India. I was like, yeah, this is this is not only what I want to do but I know that I can do it. And I've been lucky enough that ever since then, I've been involved in in the reptile and amphibian ecology community ever since. Incredible. So it was a, a life-changing trip. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Wow. And I think it's a testament to what can happen when you get yourself out to these countries and experience it for yourself. There's very you know, it's great the access that we have on on the internet tv and everything else and the quality of books that are being produced these days we can access all of this information so well but going and f 
experiencing it and feeling it and and smelling it and and everything else for yourself that is it's just a phenomenal experience it's funny how you said you know when you when you was first there and it was just being in that you know in in the in the tropics or in 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 the rainforest and i've heard other people say it's like a sense overload you can hear so many things <laughs> smell stuff and and see stuff and it's just you you just don't know what to do with yourself yeah absolutely and then it's kind of like there's so much stuff that you can't see anything because it it's just <laughs> right yeah. it's just everywhere and one of the things that i've learned over the years and you know from that trip onwards is if you just stop and be still that's when the forest opens itself up and shows you yeah so on that very first trip i had a couple of experiences where we we stopped walking because we'd heard a rustle and we kind of hid behind a trunk and there was a deer walking just off in the distance and it came closer and closer and closer and then there was some movement in the trees and there were some spider monkeys going over the top and then something else happened and something else i can't you know i can't remember all of the details of it but if we hadn't have stopped when we heard that sound we wouldn't have seen any anything at all other than trees because it just it wouldn't have been there almost yeah and 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 you know you saying that I I do a little bit of um, wildlife photography and depend it doesn't matter where you are I could be you know uh, within a mile of my house but exactly that if you're walking through the woods just stop for five minutes and just keep still and then you do start to see things and I, and I've got some of my best shots through just doing that just waiting and then all of a sudden you see a little movement and then you can pick up on and and it's like the animals start to come out. Yeah, absolutely. And that's also a really good point. You don't need to go off to these far-flung places that are amazing to have those experiences. You can go into the wood next door and or down the local park or even just walking down the street. If you're paying attention and are aware of what's going on around you, there's there's life out there. Yeah. And 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 it's there to experience. And it's a wonderful thing. It's so so good for how for our own well-being. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we're, we're massively promoting at the moment, um, you know, getting out into nature for mental health reasons uh, and also education for kids. Um, it's it's a fantastic place to learn so much, not just, you know, <clears throat> not just about the animals, but everything else, the environment, and, and, right, and yeah. it can lead to so many different things. I think, yeah. I think and, I'm, I'm proofing the pudding as well. I this year... Um, this Sunday, yesterday, was the the first Sunday I haven't been out for a walk. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's only because I'm going away. I thought, you know what, I'm going to do plenty of walking over the next week or so. I'm going to give myself a line. But I've been getting up at the crack of dawn every Sunday, getting out there and just walking and seeing things. Yeah. And, and it has. It, it's done. It's made the it's made the working week bearable. You know what I mean? It, uh, it, yeah, yeah. it really has made me feel better for it. Yeah, and I think when we go out and we have those experiences, you, you, you touched on the education side of things. Um, like you learn about the environment and you learn about ecology and, and, and all of these other things. But ultimately, we learn about ourselves as well. Yeah, and And I think that that's just – I mean, I, I've seen it with, with um, participants on our expeditions when they've come out and they have – 
life-changing experiences, just like I did when I went to the Amazon for the first time. And being able to see that, being able to facilitate that for people mm-hmm. is just such a beautifully magical thing. It is absolutely amazing. You, I know it's funny actually because we had Dave Howard on the podcast last week and he has also worked on the Jerry Martin uh, project and and, and I know you've you've done some work um, with Jerry Martin and and Ron Whittaker. Yes, that's right. Yeah, a few years ago now, but for following on from going out with with Paul's groups for for a number of years, I ended up working with them. with with Jerry and Ram on a, on a number of projects out there. It was really good fun and amazing to work with two legends. Absolutely. So when, 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 when you say when you say projects, what would that what would that involve, Roland? What when, with with Jerry and Rob? Yeah. Okay, so um one of the main projects that I got involved with with them it was part of their snake bite initiative. Um, just after the One Million Snake Bite report came out, um, and we were going up into places like Gujarat and running snake handling workshops for the snake rescuers, and we also went up into Arunachal Pradesh in the northeast um, to do some venom collecting to to better understand how the anti-venom situation in India could be improved. Wow! Um, and so yeah, it was that was a a real it's quite rewarding um, stuff, that is, I should imagine. Yeah, it was really cool to be involved in, in that and some amazing experiences, like um, going back to what we were talking about earlier, like those childhood dreams or what you think travelling is going to be like. I remember the one of the times when we were up in Arunachal Pradesh, which is very, very remote, um, and to a point that, that they wouldn't let outsiders into the, the state at all. It was, it was a restricted state for many years. Um, so we go into this village for the first time, and the first thing that was said to us was, "Are you ghosts?" And honestly, because they'd never seen a white person before in three generations, they'd never seen a white person before. Um, and within wow. three days, there were people coming out of the the surrounding villages in the mountains to see the Hollywood movie stars, because that's the only place they'd seen white people. So oh therefore, we God. had to be from Hollywood. It was it was utterly bizarre. Um, and I don't think there's very many places in the world where you can still experience what that what it would have been like for the early ex- European explorers, you know? Absolutely, yeah, hundred percent. Absolutely uh, incredible. That is incredible. Mm-hmm. And uh, following on from that, you st- you'd done a little bit of work with TV and radio as well. Yeah, done a done a done a few little bits, which is is always good fun. It's a it's definitely a challenge. Um, to, to get over feeling self-conscious. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, but I think what would have been my first experience of that would probably have been doing something like uh, we, I did a radio program, which was a really nice, gentle way to get into it. Um, I can't remember the name of the program now, but it was a natural history program on Radio 4. And we were walking around one of I was working for amphibian and reptile conservation trust at the time and we did a whole 40 minute program on sand lizard and smooth snake conservation in Dorset and that was just absolutely it was an amazing experience and I was really really pleased with that and then doing some little bits with with the BBC for like the one show and um, BBC breakfast and stuff like that Um, so that's how it started and then I didn't really think of it that much for a long while after that and 
until a few years ago when I was approached by a French TV documentary company and they came out to Guatemala and made a, a, sh a short 20 minute film about um, work that we were doing with crocodiles in Guatemala at right. the time. And that was um, probably the most intense week of my life. Um, <laughs> it was utterly exhausting. You know, we'd be filming at six o'clock in the morning, going all day. It was the hottest part of the year. It was March. It was really dry. I was getting sunburn, all kinds of stuff. And at the same time, they really wanted snakes. Yeah. To, to film snakes, you know. Um, so we were getting all this great stuff with, with, um, with, with the crocs and everything else. We were really fortunate. The river was low and there hadn't been much rain, so the water was really clear. They were getting fabulous footage. Um, and so we'd get to the end of, a, of their working day at six, have dinner, they'd relax for the rest of the evening, and I'd go out looking for snakes until one, two o'clock in the morning. And in the dry... And in heat like that, it's really difficult to find anything. And it was just, it was just nonstop. And then you know, up at six o'clock in the morning the next day and carrying on. Um, wow. By the end of it, I was absolutely battered, beaten, and bruised. <laughs> see, this is all the stuff that people don't see. I watched something the other day and I found it incredible. And they said we was filming for eight hours to get four minutes that went on to the, you know, were actually went yeah. in once it was edited and cut. They had four minutes of footage and it took them eight hours to record it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, going back to, 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 to one of the BBC experiences, we recorded for a whole day trying to film adders. And in the final film, they used 20 seconds, if that. <laughs> and then and the rest of it was, was stock footage and not stuff that we, we had filmed at all. It was like, well, that was a waste of my day. That's what it felt like anyway. Um, yeah. But this, this you know, I, I swore after this, this, this French film, I was never going to do anything with, with, with documentaries filming ever again until I saw what they did with it. And it was and amazing. It was, it was brilliant. It was so cool. And it was another childhood dream. Um, of wanting, you know, being influenced heavily by David Attenborough and all that kind of stuff, of either wanting yeah. to be a documentary presenter or filmmaker, um, which isn't quite where my path took me. But I have achieved that goal because I've done it, you, you know. Yeah, and it, absolutely. And it's, it's such a great way to be able to talk about what we do, what is going on in places like Guatemala to a much wider audience than we would have access to just by ourselves, you know? Yes. Um, so that, that's a really important aspect. Here's, yeah, a, here's, a, here's a random one for you. Um, you talk, you talk about um, being in the cities in Guatemala. Um, yeah. What, what are the, the cities actually like? Are they, are they what we expect from cities here or, uh, um that's that's a really interesting question um yet again you're, you're full of them tonight um <laughs> they're, they're not like european cities parts of them are part like guatemala city is this weird dichotomy parts of it are very very rich like you can go and buy yeah apple products and levi jeans and all of these big branded stuff and then other parts yeah. of it are just slums mm -hmm. And it, Guatemala City in itself has this has a very interesting um, history. So it's currently the capital of the country, but it didn't used to be. 
Up until the mid seventies, a city called Antigua was the capital, which is up in up in the mountains. Um, mm-hmm. It's not far from from Guatemala City. In fact, about forty five minutes drive. Yeah. But in seventy six, there was a huge earthquake, um, and it displaced millions of people, killed millions of people as well. Um, and those displaced people came into the city and the city obviously had no infrastructure for them it was not ready for for an influx of of thousands upon thousands of people and so they just set up their own little areas and and started building houses so it's this real mad hodgepodge of of all kinds of of things and there's half half the population of the country lives in guatemala city Mm. wow Um, so you know there's periods of the day where you don't go out because one the city isn't designed to walk in but also you go out in a car and you it will take you two hours to move two blocks because everybody's moving at the same time it's absolutely madness sounds like Um, carnage yeah it it, it literally yeah (laughs) that's incredible Um, that half the population of guatemala live in just the one city how how many people is that that's a good question. I'd have to look it up, but it's oh, so... Come on, you, you come on a podcast. I know, I should, You've I done know, no, prep. Properly, <laughs> no, no prep. You never told me you were going to talk about population. You never said you were going to ask good questions. Yeah, yeah, yeah right. Questions? That's <laughs> not you guys. <laughs> I, did my, I did my research, and you, you never asked, normally ask so many good <laughs> that's, questions. That's what it was. He thought he was going to come on and just talk about himself. Have a breeze. Yeah, yeah I know, right? <laughs> and, it's, I it is it's, funny. It's, it's something like 16 million. Gosh, that's a lot. It is. It is crazy you say that, though. About um, you know some of it being um, sort of right up there on the um, <clears throat> on the scale, as in you know rich areas, um, and then the rest of it is slums. Because <clears throat> to be to be honest, some of the biggest and most uh, lucrative, or what you'd think is like the, the most lucrative cities you could ever go to, are. This little small area is like you know absolutely amazing, and everything you ever dream- dreamt of it to be, and then you go outside that little area, only literally a couple of blocks, yeah, and it's, and really it's just slums. Yeah. I mean yeah. Hollywood. When I went to Hollywood, I it was a huge eye opener for me, mm-hmm. really huge eye opener. You've got this one big strip, this mile strip that is just amazing. It's out of this world, <clears throat> you know. The money they've spent on just things like bollards, you know, and and fences and railings is just immense. The the amount of money that's spent on things there, and then you literally go two back two blocks back from the strip, and it's uh, metal grates on windows everywhere. Windows yeah. are boarded up all over the place. There's bums on the street every street corner asking you for money. There's rubbish piles everywhere that they just haven't bothered with they don't care there's rats running around it's absolute like dire conditions the problem there mate is sorry danny is because there's so much gambling done you're gonna have you know you see the the the, you know the, the the fancy life but there's a lot of there's a lot of problems come with gambling, and off the back of that, you'll get drugs. You know what I mean? People yeah. in debt, lose houses. Mm-hmm. So you know, just on the the, the you know, the, just by its own sort of like what yeah. it is, you're gonna get that, aren't you? 
Yeah, I mean, that, I mean, yeah, you say gambling. I mean, Vegas um, was just as bad. Um, I mean, Vegas was like the nice parts of Vegas were were actually a lot more. Like they're, they're huge because um, there's casinos everywhere and there's so much money ploughed into the whole city, really. Um, but the second you go out of the city, it's just just real concrete everywhere. Like everything's just plain bland boring concrete there's no money spent on anything and it's almost like the city kind of just uh, stops do you know what i mean yeah, like yeah. it's obviously obviously they've built outwards i know but it's almost like you've got this amazing place to be in and you walk 20 minutes one direction and it's just gone there's yeah. nothing left of it and it's just concrete crap and yeah. broken down houses and you know, derelict places that aren't used anymore, and it's almost like there's no power left. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's, yeah, Vegas yeah. is a really weird place to visit. You know, if you if you ever go to Vegas, just stay in the middle in of the Vegas. city. <laughs> yeah, don't go out of it because it's not. It's 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 really eye opening. It really is. So, Roland, you was talking about sort of like some of your TV work and 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 whatnot. And what it's like in Guatemala. I know you've got some quite exciting uh, news uh, that's happened quite recently that we'll come on to after. But going back into sort of like your Indigo expeditions, um, you know, how did you come about to say, do you know what, I'm I'm enjoying going out on these trips so much. Um, I'm gonna I'm gonna try and make a living at doing it. Yeah, and how how did you? find the people to to do these tours and to go out in the contacts and stuff sure so um i first came to guatemala in 2012 i came just as a tourist came out for a month and um just to to explore the ancient mayan sites and and come and look for some snakes at the same time and um having bearing in mind at this point i'd been doing work with um with Jerry Martin on on their expeditions, I worked with Paul Grigg Smith on some of his trips as well, so, and and worked within volunteering in in different aspects. So I'd gained a lot of experience. But when I came to Guatemala, I I had no real idea that in seven years' time I'd still be working out here, or that I'd even start working out here. That wasn't the intention at all. But I spent ten days at a place called. Um, Estación Biológica Las Huacamayas, which means the Scarlet Macaw Biological Center station. Uh, thank you very much. Um, and that's in a in the north of Guatemala, in a um, a national park called Laguna del Tigre. And I spent ten days there, and I was just out looking for wildlife, looking for snakes. And I realised that as as I was out there, that very little was known about the reptile and amphibian fauna of the national park there'd been lots of work done on the mammals and the birds and and such like um but all we really knew at that time was that there were 36 species of reptiles and amphibians on the official record for the national park in an area that that is highly biodiverse for 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 all, all of those kinds of species and coupled with that there's an issue with the deforestation and there's a local community that have um concessional lands where they grow crops and i thought well the the inspiration came that we could bring groups of people out to stay at the station and we could very easily 
collect data that would contribute to the knowledge of the reptiles and amphibians of the national park. Um, and so I presented that idea to the guys that, that I was with, who the guys who run the station, and they were up for it. Um, so came back to the UK. Uh, a friend of mine who's now um, my business partner and co-founder of Ex Indigo Expeditions, Adela, built me, um, built me a website. And we started advertising places. And once I had... Once I was ready to advertise, and we, we, I advertised through just putting little notes up on things like Facebook and put a few adverts out in um, some of the conservation job volunteering websites. And I sold all six places that I wanted to sell in three weeks. I'm um, surprised. And, and so then was still getting interest, so ran another two-week expedition immediately afterwards as well. And it kind of went from there, really. And those first two expeditions really showed me that I was onto something with this. It was really important to me that the people who came actually contributed to what we were doing. It wasn't just come out and come and see some snakes, which is fine. It was come out and, and contribute. And on that very first expedition, we found a species of snake called the banded snail-eating snake. Yeah, I've I've just seen that. It's it's a stunning looking, real snake, beautiful yeah. beautiful snake. Can that, we have uh, the that, um the binomial for that as well, please? Tropidodipsis <laughs> fasciatus. <laughs> that's that's it, yeah, I'll take it. <laughs> so that snake at that time had never been recorded in Guatemala before. Wow. It was the first record for the country, and that was our first expedition. Oh, um, you're straight onto a winner. <laughs> straight onto a winner, then, and then over the, over the next coming years, you know, every time we went out, we would add species, and the species list now is currently sitting at 94, as opposed to 36 when we started. Well done, isn't that's crazy, incredible. isn't it? Do you, do you find it? Um, <clears throat> I find it baffling, really, that um like like over here in the uk obviously we, we probably don't have anywhere near as many species but it isn't it crazy that they don't actually know how many species they do have well, yes, it's if, almost if like they don't at, appreciate if you look at certain areas that have been heavily done so I, i'm at the moment i'm looking at going to northern thailand and i was looking right. at this one one reserve and just like what wildlife's in there and there was a list of uh, just hundreds of different Birds mm -hmm. and amphibians and reptiles and you know bears and you know, but it's like there's it's a popular area. A lot of people have been there and explored, mm -hmm. you know. Yeah. Because you know, I think you know, I think there's you know Thailand as a rule, you know, it's the big backpacking route and that kind of thing. Whereas like places like Guatemala, people are only really starting to go. Oh, I might go there. Yeah, yeah absolutely. It's all fairly and, new, so I think maybe you know, it just needs people to get off their bottom, stop being lazy, and get out there and find it. Yeah, I, th I think that has a, has is a big contributory factor. So um, Guatemala for for thirty six years was in a civil war situation. Thirty six years yeah. um, until time. the mid nineties. You know, it's a long, long time. Mm -hmm. So our understanding of the flora and fauna of Guatemala is much behind other countries because it ha was not accessible. It was not a priority. Mm. Trying to find peace was a priority. Yeah, yeah, people are fighting a war and not going to be thinking about, you know, the reptiles yeah. and amphibians that they've got right. in the area. Right. Yeah. And, and yeah, it's not safe for, for foreign for foreign um, people 
you know, foreign researchers to come in and do the work, it wasn't safe to do so. Mm-hmm. So there is a huge amount of work to do in Guatemala still, and you know there's new species of snake being described from Guatemala, not not in terms of splitting them out genetically, but I've never been found by science before. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's wide open. We had another experience at an, an, another site that we work at up in the cloud forests where where we we're still working, um, and again this was the first time we took a group there. And I think it was actually the first night we were, we'd found a lizard. We were we were photographing this anole, and one of the group looked up in a tree and went, "Oh, look, there's a frog up there." So we to find out what it was, we 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 brought it down and, and keyed it out. And while we were doing that, she found a second one. Mm-hmm. And these are huge tree frogs. I mean, they weigh forty-five grams for a tree wow. frog is wow. ginormous. Yeah. Absolutely massive, and it turns out it's a species of spike thumb frog that, up until that point, was only known from one waterfall that was 40 kilometres away from our location. Incredible! And it, so we'd found the second location of something that hadn't been seen for 15 years. Yeah, this absolutely is absolutely amazing. It, it is amazing, and I think you've you've got something there that's so marketable because because. People that usually are into reptiles, amphibians, uh, whether they're keepers or just enjoy seeing them out in the world, to have it, to be able to contribute to conservation would make me even like I'd I'd want to go on that trip more than just going yeah. just to photograph or see them. If I can think, do you know what I'm contributing here mm-hmm. to to you know course, reptile yeah. conservation or amphibian con- conservation? It just makes it even more better. Mm-hmm. That's that's my feeling, you know. I I came at it from a, you know I'd spent many years going out to these places on holiday, and yes. that's great and it's wonderful. One of the things that we did with that very first trip that that I went to with with Paul Greig Smith is we published the data from that, the observations, just the observational data, nothing more. Um, just we found these species here at this lo- in these locations. It wasn't what we were setting out to do, but we'd got such a good species list by the end of it in the Western Ghats where there was very little known. It's like, actually, this could contribute to what is known and, and contribute yeah. to, the, to the conservation community. Mm-hmm. Why wouldn't you want to do that? So that's what we did, you know, and, and that's kind of been one of my standards that I've tried to keep to ever since is, Okay, let's go and have some fun. Let's let's go and see these amazing creatures. Mm-hmm. But let's contribute as well. Let's give back. Yeah, and, absolutely. And, and, you know, if you can do that, then that's almost that's as as good as you can get with with in terms of um, being responsible with your travel and and things like that. You know, give back. Yeah. We know flying, you know, has a big, you know, carbon footprint when you go on an aeroplane. But if you're doing that to go and do, you know, and and to contribute to conservation, it uh, makes you feel a little bit more, a bit bit better about yourself. Definitely. <laughs> well, okay, so I've got a question for you. If you if you can't answer this or get it wrong, then you need to give us loads of juicy gossip and all the horrible, crazy, nasty things that have happened to you. Right, okay, I'm nervous now. Okay, so how many, how many expeditions have you been on? Have I been on or have I run? Been on. Both. Been on. Both, you uh, not make it harder, both. Both. 
I'm going to have to wait while I count it all up. Bring your house and prepped. Yeah, yeah. So Indigo Expeditions have run 21 expeditions. Wow. Um, and then I've been on one, two, three, four, five, probably about 10 others. Okay. Amazing. Cool. Uh, so, tell us, can you tell us not about... not precise, though. So we need the... the, the, the yeah. <laughs> 31. No, no, you, 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 no. <laughs> you know where he's leading with this. <laughs> okay, so obviously when you go out into the wilderness... Things don't always go to plan. Um, there are sharp sticks, rocks, slippy things, bitey things, um, bitey things. I'm going to repeat it again. Um, so, <laughs> More bitey yeah, things. Yes. Yeah. Um, has anything ever gone wrong? <laughs> yeah, things do go wrong occasionally, unfortunately. You can plan for, for them as much as you want, but sometimes things happen. The most common thing is people falling over, um, which is... Right, I was going to stop you right there, right now. We had someone on who fell over, and the podcast yeah. was going on really well. <laughs> up to the point he mentioned he fell over, and oh, then he spent, he spent further two hours in the podcast, and then another podcast <laughs> explaining <laughs> what happened about 45 minutes rock. after falling over. <laughs> so, um, you don't want a repeat of that. You're not <laughs> as privileged as he is, so <laughs> to, I'm conscious of time. No, but, it, okay. but, but you're right though because people think oh you know you're more likely to get bitten by a snake or stung by a scorpion but it's usually the normal injuries like you say falling over that, that that's the problem the, the, it is and you know it, 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 it can be quite comical as well um to be fair <laughs> <laughs> when someone when someone's walking through um through what they think is just a shallow piece of mud and they end up up to their waist in mud that's you know you, you obviously help them but but you have to have a little bit of a giggle oh know. absolutely um, <laughs> i think um one of the 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 times when it does go wrong when, when you make a mistake when you're handling snakes um so i had an experience back in 2013 again in laguna del tigre and i think at the time i was fe- felt fairly what I would consider blasé now about rear fang species. Yeah. Because you read in the book, you know, it's mild swelling and, a, a, you know, a little bit of, it's a a, of pain around. <laughs> yeah, and it's like a bee sting. Um, and that isn't necessarily the case. And I think it's also the limit of what we understand, not the gospel truth. I think mm-hmm. I I saw it as at the time in my naivety as being, well, that that's what it is. The fact of the matter is people don't get bitten by them regularly enough and don't have big reactions to them enough for us to know. So I made a mistake with a snake. Um, it was a species called the rainforest cat-eyed snake, which is a um, beautiful, stunning, stunning snake. And the binomial? Leptodira frenata. Uh, yeah, can, yeah, like can. The park horse. You can't catch him out. Now, we at the time we had a group of park rangers with us, and we were teaching them about snake ID and how to handle them, so that when they got called out to people's houses, they could safely extract snakes from from people's properties and things like that. Mm-hmm. And we just found about seven individuals of 
a similar, a, of a related species called the northern catoid snake, Leptodira septentrionalis, before you ask. Um, <laughs> Good <laughs> and, man. And so um, we, we, we were used to hand, seeing those, and they're, they're really placid, calm species and everything else. And then it was... Ad Rad actually found found this other species of cat-eyed snake, and he he put it in a in a bag so that we could ID it properly. Um, and he passed me the bag, and he said, "Oh, it's a it's a leptodira." And one of the one of the park guards said to me, um, "Oh, one of the the the, the, the alis, the ones that we've already been seeing." I was like, "No, this is a different species." So I opened up the bag, got the snake out, having forgotten that a few minutes before I'd been handling a frog. Uh-huh. Ah, and these guys feed on frogs. Yep. Um, so it's quite calmly in my hand, moving around, no no issues. And then all of a sudden, goes, "Ooh, that smells tasty." <laughs> and it's a tiny snake, you know. It's a juvenile. It's probably, I think, it was less than thirty centimeters long. It was not not a big big animal. Um, and it bit onto my finger, and because it was tiny, and I was like, "Oh, it's just a cat-eyed snake; it will be fine. I don't want to hurt it. I'll let it let go mm-hmm. when it when it's ready." Silly me! Um, <laughs> it didn't let go, and then, as well as the, like the, that that kind of sharp needle-like physical, yeah, there's a tooth I've been bitten kind of pain. There was a burn sensation. I was like, yeah, That's the this, venom. Is, this, is, this is not good. This is the, okay. So we need to get the snake off now. And um, about ten minutes later, my fingers, the, the it was on my middle finger, um, and the knuckle start, mid, middle knuckle started to to swell up. I was like, okay, this is interesting. And about half an hour later, my whole finger was swollen. An hour later, all of my fingers were swollen. I couldn't see any of my knuckles. Right. Um, I was going in and out of nauseous, of nausea, um, starting to feel really off. It ended up being the most painful night of my life. Wow! Um, like a bee sting, no, it wasn't. Um, it's a big fucking bee. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah. It's, um, it's like it's like a bee sting, but just seven hundred of them. Yeah, right, just worse. Um, yeah. And you know, we, one, once we started, once this started happening, we started writing notes and, 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 and keeping a log of what was going on and everything else. Um, I swear I was hallucinating at night in the pitch black. Woke up the next morning, the swelling was up to my elbow, mm. and there were loads of little blood blisters all over my finger, like oh, there were wow. hematomas, which all congealed into one huge one. Oh, lovely! Um, and it took a, took two weeks for that all to go down, and it took another two weeks after that for for the scab that was left from the blister to to heal up. Oh. Um, and have you had any? Do you have any scarring now from that? I don't have any scarring. It all, all, all that was all fine, but I do have a lasting effect. So if it gets really humid, or really so if it gets really humid, I get a really um, like intense burning pain in that knuckle. And if it gets cold, especially if I'm riding a motorbike or something like that for a few hours, that finger will go white and completely numb, and I can't move it. Yeah, like nerve, like, like um, white finger like damage. Nerve damage. Yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. So this this idea that that oh, it's a it's a rear fang species. I can be. It's not going to be that bad if something does happen, and it probably isn't. Yeah. I think it, you know it, it's a little bit 
um, what's the word I'm looking for? It, it's naive. it's almost a bit irri- naive and irresponsible to, mm. to yourself. Well, yeah, because by calling it a rear fang species, you're literally just telling the person where they where the fangs or you know, ah, are. Yeah, yeah. You know, I mean, you're not stating how potent the venom is. Yeah, and, no, and for think, the most um, part, we don't know how potent no, it's it like is, being, and we don't even know if it's venom. It, yeah, to stuff like that, you know, it gets very complicated. Mm. I think yeah. slowly in the in the UK, um, we're starting to come round to sort of a new um, general consensus. And I I personally think that uh, when when a rear fang species is or the symptoms from a bite are described, I think after it, it should be best case scenario you know um swelling pain blah 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 is the best case scenario worst um, so you should no that's best case you no, should expect, yeah. that. You should expect that nonetheless you know that's just a given yeah. and it's going to get worse. swollen it's going to be painful it's going to be pretty gnarly that is just a given yeah um but there are possibly much worse side effects and it could get a lot worse you're talking anaphylaxis blah 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 so yeah. I personally think <clears throat> those very simple symptoms that they explain should always, at the end, have best-case scenario. Mm-hmm. And, yeah, and I mean, it's, th- it's not always down to the species that bite you. It's the individual themselves. Yeah, I will react yeah. differently to you, mm-hmm. who will de- react differently to Roland, who will de- react yeah. differently to Hoss. Mm-hmm. This, that's one of the issues with, with snake bite in general, really, regardless of whether it's rear fanged or front fanged or whatever. There's so many variables in it. It's not like, oh, you broke your leg, okay, we'll, we'll unbreak your leg. Yeah. Um, yeah. It, it's, well, how much venom did it inject? Yep. Had it fed recently? Was it, you know, how... Age of the snake. Right. How, how were you feeling that day? Were you under the yeah. weather? Mm-hmm. Um, all of these... Had you eaten recently? Yeah, well, I mean, it, Rob Rob Pilly explained it well, didn't he? He said, um, "Absolutely, you know, this, he, he got bitten once by a certain species, and it wasn't too bad. He got bitten again well, by the that, same species. Um, is it a further lance? He got bit by? Yeah, but then, because of the was, age, it yeah. was because of the age. Their their venom changes at a certain mm-hmm. point when they sort of like go into adulthood, mm-hmm. and because it was in that change, he got a dose of two different types of venom or such. Yeah. Was it a third lance? Uh, I th- yes, was it, it was a third. Yeah, oh, no, no, it was yeah. a third yeah, lance. Third yeah. lance that got him out in the field, and then he was at his mate's reptile shop. Got done by That's a bla- yeah, got, yeah. got done by a blanding guy, and ru- just ruined his, ruined his him. Day. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, but it, it's, it's mad. And I think you know we should we should take you know caution. I know sometimes people mock me for hooking my hog nose. Uh, but at the end of the day, I've never been bitten by one. I've never been stung by a wasp or anything like that, and mm. I do not know how I'd react. And, and to be completely honest, for the sake of picking the hook up and moving it with that, no or the week in hospital, I, mm-hmm. I, I know which one I'm taking. Yeah. Hmm. Why, why do you need to find out? You know what I mean? And I'm an unlucky, right. I'm, I'm, I'm an unlucky sod. You know what's going to yeah, happen. Yeah, it's going to happen. It's gonna happen. <laughs> and your snakes absolutely hate you, Hoss. So it's going to happen. Uh, uh, but, yeah, it, I mean, there's no point. And unless you're trying to achieve something very, very drastic or very, very important, what's the point? But there is no point. You're not proving anything to anybody. You're not. You're not achieving anything by taking that bite, are you? You, you achieve nothing, yeah. bar yeah. shitload of pain for no reason. Definitely. Yeah, and I, th- I think I think you know you, we 
accidents happen and, and we mm-hmm. make mistakes and and so you know that that is what it is yeah. but we can do everything that we can one to, to you know to, to, to be safe it, for yeah. ourselves but also be respectful to the snakes as well yeah um, because it because in general it happens because we've made a mistake which means we're not respecting that animal as well as we could yeah so i've, yeah. I've, I've always said that as well so if, if if an animal has bitten me it's because I've messed up. Mm-hmm. You know yeah. what I mean? The, you know, I am not food. You know what I mean? They know that I'm not food majority of the time. Um, if I'm getting in their face, if I've done something to upset them or I've disrespected what they think is their boundary mm-hmm. and I get bit, that's my problem, not theirs. Yeah, you know, uh, they've, they've obviously, for whatever reason, felt threatened. Yeah, yeah. Defended and themselves and bitten you. Hundred percent, you know. So the only weapon, it's the only weapon they have, literally. I mean, so. right, okay. So, being that said, um, we've got twenty odd minutes left. So let's talk about what the future holds for you. Uh, where, where, where would you like to see your expedition company go? Are there any trips that you've got planned, um, or anything like that? Where would I like to see it go? I would like to see it continue into the future. Um, that's that's the main thing. I'd like to see it continue to make contributions to the the conservation of reptiles and amphibians, particularly in Guatemala. It's a country that I've grown very fond of. Um, so coming up this year, we've got a, a few more exp- – we've got several expeditions going coming out um, – mostly up to the cloud forest site that we were talking about where this this um, spike thumb frog is found um and what we're trying to look at there is so i don't know if you guys are familiar with something called agroecology or permaculture no but Hoss will be googling it as we speak 100% <laughs> I'm, I'm on holiday mate <laughs> but no uh, I, okay. I, I, so so it's a, a way of um, growing crops in a wildlife sensitive manner is probably the simplest way to put it so you plant mixed crops instead of a monocrop you don't use um pesticides or fertilizers you use natural manures and 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 that kind of thing so so basically you're growing food to encourage animals in at the same time yeah exactly that's that's my dream so it, it, yeah. food and reptiles and, and you, wicked food and reptiles it's good isn't it um so the the the, the group that we work with the organization we work with up in the cloud forest that's what they do and they teach that farming method to the local mine communities who are generally subsistence farmers and you it, there's kind of like an inherent understanding that yes if you farm sensitively then it's going to be better for wildlife but no one's really ever quantified it especially for reptiles and amphibians and with reptiles and amphibians you have this issue that they don't like crossing unsuitable habitat they won't they don't like exposing themselves the the frogs and amphibians or whatever um have um an intolerance to drying out and stuff like that and that's why you get these small pockets of animals don't you right yeah and it's why they're really susceptible to habitat fragmentation so as you lose more and more habitat they just get more and more crammed in and that really affects their populations so what we're starting this year actually is to look much more closely at where reptiles and amphibians are are found within this project it's a 70 hectare farm 
and we've recorded 54 species of, of reptiles and amphibians on it, which if you think about the UK where there's 13 native species in the whole country, yeah. Yeah. there's 54 species on this 70 hectare farm, which is mind blowing. And then wow. when you look at it a bit more deeply, um, 50% of the amphibian species are either endemic and or endangered to some degree. Wow. Thirty percent is is true for the for the reptiles, so you, you, it's, it's an a tiny inc- place as well, isn't it? And it's a tiny place. Mm. Um, so what we're looking at and starting to to, to 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 investigate more deeply is how are those species using these farmed areas compared to in the na- in the remaining habitat. So we're looking at levels of diversity within different patches of forest and within different patches of agriculture. Mm-hmm. And then also because we've got five years of data from there now and we'll continue to, to do this, we can look at recolonization rates of some of these species and also look at how the habitat, um, so what resources within the natural habitat are they using and what might be missing from the agricultural areas and how can we put that into the agricultural areas so that those species that aren't coming out of the forests can do so because reptiles and amphibians they don't care for the most part about what species of plants there are they care about the structure that they create and the microhabitats that they create so we can use crop plants whether that's walnut trees or um or pineapples or whatever to recreate resources and still get food at the same time yeah yeah and then we can use that to that farming method to reconnect remaining patches of cloud forest that's the habitats wider and that are all small fragments and you're going to join them together and create yeah absolutely fantastic so then everybody wins people have 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 access to to nutritional food that is probably more productive than growing in contemporary traditional methods mm-hmm. um, which means that they have more food that they need which, than they need which means they can sell it which means they can make money which means they can get themselves out, out of the, the poverty cycle that they're in yeah plus we don't have to cut down more cloud forests to do it mm-hmm. and that's the key yeah, isn't it, it? yeah, yeah. You, know, so the, you know loss of habitat is is the biggest sort of like threat to to all these species i was thinking earlier when you was talking about you know these species that you're finding that's never been found before and you know they're endangered i wonder how many have been lost that we never ever got to see or find oh it's um it's mind-boggling when you start thinking mm. about that and and you know this this particular that 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 frog the the the, the spike thumb frog we could have never found it and that forest could have gone and we would never have known that that population was there yeah here's, you know here's a here's a random one um thinking about the um fires in australia at the minute um yeah. is is that something that um you see at all in guatemala or is um is too the, wet uh, yeah is the is the weather sort of you know way too wet and humid for that Unfortunately, yes, we do see it. Um, so, so a lot of the agriculture still is is on a slash and burn mm-hmm, system. Mm-hmm. Um, so you, when you're flying over the country at certain times of year, huge portions of it are on fire. Um, it's relatively controlled for the most part. You don't yeah. you don't get wildfires in the same 
ex to the same extent that Except Australia right. is seeing, which is just an utter tragedy. Mm. Um, but we in in Laguna del Tigre, that's you, we think of of tropical forest as being wet. Yeah. Well, Laguna del Tigre is a is a what is called a humid forest. Yeah. It has a very distinct dry season, and it turns into a tinderbox. Yeah. And a few years ago, actually, it was just after we did the the crocodile film, um, a fire was started illegally, um, and it took out thirty thousand hectares in five days. Wow. Which wow. is a huge <clears throat> chunk of, of of forest that that was that 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 went and it, as a, much of a tragedy as it was, we were very lucky where we were, mm. where we were working because the winds were heading north and it pushed the fire away from us. But it, mm. if it had been going south, it would have, you know, destroyed the forest that we were working in. And, yeah. and this is a forest you were saying, or oh, that farm you were saying, there was fifty four species. Of of uh, on a seventy hectare, on a seventy hectare farm. So so where so that, using how many animals are being killed in that fire? Yeah. Mm -hmm. So that and so that fire that, that the one that took out the thirty thousand hectares was in Laguna del Tigre, and we've recorded I think it's ninety four species in a five thousand hectare plot of land. Wow. wow. Yeah. So what I was going to ask is, when it comes to um, creating these uh this this permaculture um and adding um and adding these crops and trying to connect certain parts of the forest etc um is there any uh, protocols in place to try and stop or contain wildfires if they do happen okay that's a that's a really cool question um so when you've got a a a kind of a mixed crop and you, you quite often with with, um, with permaculture or agroecology you create a forest canopy as well mm -hmm. um, so you might use a crop tree like walnut or avocado or something like that mm -hmm. and when you've done that in general you've got better soils and things like that so then those habitats in themselves are much more resilient to fire in the first place mm -hmm. um, so yeah in 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 theory, you have made the um, the habitat more resilient. You've also taken away the need to slash and burn mm -hmm. in the first yeah. place. So yeah. the cause of many of these fires no longer needs to happen. Yeah, yeah, which is that's that's we, getting to the yeah, which the is cause. a really cool cool part of it because what what would it's not even let's go and we need we need more land for agriculture. Let's take down some more cloud forest and we can use that for for our firewood mm -hmm. they just set fire to it yeah um so you you've eliminated the need to do that because you're no longer needing to to cut down more more forest yeah because because every tree and plant and what have you has has a use in itself so yeah and, and when you get up into the cloud forest you you know you you're talking these majestic oak trees that are mm -hmm covered in lichens and bromeliads and mosses mm -hmm. and all ecosystems in themselves they're absolutely full of life mm -hmm. um and it, it's so um, as a as a conservationist and, and someone who is able you know has the luxury to think like this 
Um, it's such a, a, a tragedy when those trees come down. And what you have to bear in mind, you know, we, we, when you're on the front line like that, you have to bear in mind that these people, they're just trying to survive, you know. Yeah. yeah, they're trying yeah. to get enough money so that they can send their kids to school for a few years. Yeah, they're yeah. they're living without electricity. They're living without running water. Mm-hmm. And the truth you, is, they I, don't I, have the luxury to think, "Oh, do you know what? I better not chop that tree down because there's other things living in it." Yeah, yeah, no, yeah. It's like, and, and, my crops have failed again this year. <laughs> I need to feed my family. Yeah, literally all the yeah. That's all they think about. And they, uh, someone getting offended in the UK is not on their priority list. Yeah, it? and then when they're looking at them, think. thinking, look at you with your two cars, four tellies, yeah. your three or four bedroomed house, yeah. you know, and your nice yeah. job, and, which gives you loads of money, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah, yeah. and, and you're, you're coming out and you've got your nice camera that you're taking photographs that's probably more money than I'll earn in, in several years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, um, yeah. so it's very easy to be critical of these people. Mm-hmm. Um, when when you're not involved in it, so one of the big things that we do at that site, and and we we try and do it everywhere, is is engage with the local those local communities. So the the project that we work up work with up in the cloud forest is called um it's called Community Cloud Forest Conservation, mm-hmm. and it's a, an American NGO works out there, and they are teaching the local community how to farm in a more sustainable manner they're teaching them about the ecology of, of the cloud forests and things like that plus they're teaching the, the the their participants in their program to become leaders and teachers of their own program so it's peers lead um, teaching peers which i think is absolutely wonderful yeah. um so whenever we have a group there or whether whenever i go up there and visit i always talk with their groups about reptiles and amphibians and what what's going on in in their region and it's amazing because you know these guys have probably never left the local area and if they have it's probably only to go to the local major town or maybe to to guatemala city so they have no comprehension about what is special about where they are because it just is what it is and just just how important really how uh, how important amphibians and reptiles really are, because that's a lot. A, a lot of people don't think like that. They don't uh, think absolutely. that they controlling populations of other things that, if you know, yeah. they get out of hand, they could do a lot of damage to a, a lot of yeah. indirect. But you know, indirect species, it's it's crazy, and it's it's something that they really should know. If you know, well, what, you know what I mean. It's but, like you you obviously feel really strongly about that, don't you, Danny? Because mm-hmm, you do. absolutely detest flies. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. and hugely. What animal eats flies? <laughs> you know Don't what I mean? So. <laughs> <laughs> frogs. I know everyone keeps saying get frogs, but yeah, frog, God, frogs I, are really interesting. When you get into the tropics, especially, they're a really interesting group of animals because they're kind of this midpoint. They're, they're top predators of of insects. Right, so that's really good for your crops, but they're also food for everything. Yeah. So yeah. S- snake populations, mm-hmm. birds, mm-hmm. All, all kinds of things eat frogs. So if you lose frogs out of the, out of a tropical ecosystem, it can have major effects oh, on other parts of the of the chain. You know, yeah, and then you you're talking that. to these guys, <laughs> and they're you're like, well, okay, so in my country, like we talked about, we've got. 12, 13 species of of, of reptiles and amphibians, and there's 54 on this farm. 
and their yeah. eyes go, oh my word. I'm like, and some of them are only found on this farm or like in these few mountains. And then they start realizing, oh, actually there's something special here. And for the most part, they haven't seen these species because they don't go out into the forest at night because they're scared of it. Mm-hmm. So they've never seen some of these frogs. They've never seen many of the snakes. They've never had a safe controlled encounter with a snake because snakes, you know, when, when you encounter them on a, on a forest path, they just appear out of nowhere and they, you, they makes you jump. Mm-hmm. And you've got this inherent fear that you've been passed on from generation to generation that snakes are things to kill. Mm-hmm. So that's yeah. what happens. So when yeah. you then give, give people the opportunity to see them in a controlled manner mm-hmm. and have the opportunity to see the inherent beauty of them, Mm-hmm. It changes how it changes their perspective, and it changes yeah. how how they respond and react to the wildlife that is around them, and that is an absolute it's privilege. It's, very yeah, it's really powerful. It's like, it's like having your friends around and you know saying, "Come on, you know, let's have a look at one of these snakes," and they're like, "Oh, I don't know about that," and it's that split second they realise that that snake is not slimy. Right, exactly. <laughs> and, everything exactly. Cha- and everything changes, you know. Like, oh my god, I didn't expect it to feel like this. Oh my god, you know, I could feel all of its scales and stuff like. That. And they're actually majority of the time when that's happened to me, it they've been astounded by how that snake looks and feels up close, because yes. they never, as you say, passed on from generations from their parents and their parents. It, these snakes, snakes are. Ugh, icky, disgusting, wormy, slithery snakes, you know. But as you say, when you're in a controlled environment where they can see them up close and really feel them, they're like, wow, this is nothing like what I expected. Yeah. 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 Incredible. Yeah, it's an amazing thing to do. Um, Roland, we've, we've, we spoke quite a lot about sort of like the, 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 the rainforest, the, you know, uh, and, and the jungle and, and, and all the animals that live in there. But I know you also have some expeditions or an expedition coming up um, to do with marine life and sea turtles. Yeah, so one of the other projects that we haven't touched on um, that, that we're working with is a, a sea turtle conservation project on the Pacific coast, um, which is um, being supported by uh, a local Guatemalan NGO called Funda Selva. And that project has been running for 25 years now. Wow. And it started, so around, around that time, there was a massive crash in sea turtle populations, probably around the world. Um, but there was a major one in, in Guatemala that was caused by harvesting of eggs for, for many, many years, for generations upon generations, for, for human consumption. Mm-hmm. And... Um, people started to think, actually, no, you know what? We need to do something about this. So what the local, one of the local guys, a guy called Don Juan, um, decided to do was was set up a what they call a tortuguero, or a hatchery. So they yeah. collect eggs, they rebury the eggs, um, incubate them, and then release the babies. And there's actually a law now in Guatemala that you, you are allowed to collect eggs off of the beach, but you have to donate 20% of the clutch to a tortuguero. Um, and then you you can sell the rest. What we do is we take the whole clutch. At the, at what what yeah. this this project does. So when they started out 25 years ago, they released 450 olive ridley turtles in that first year. Mm-hmm. Last year we released 197,000. Oh wow! It's come on leaps and bounds then. Wow. Yeah. How did you yeah. even get the time? 
had the space to incubate that many. <laughs> I think well, they, I feel like you'd have you'd need a whole farm to to bury that many eggs in. Yeah. Right. So you know, there's a rotation. Um, it's for an incubation period of 45 to 50 days. So it's not us that that do that. There's a there's a community project, and there's a team of people that are working on that every day of the year, collect, receiving the eggs, looking after the nests releasing the babies and the, the the releases are public events so members of, of of the local community or visitors from guatemala city or wherever can come and see that and they, they talk talk to the visitors about um sea turtle conservation and the issues so it's a really great success story and i think that's a one really important thing to to to, to look at where we're faced with such um devastating effects that are being seen on the planet that there are some really positive stories out there yeah. and this is one of them you know um going going from from a state where there were barely any turtles coming up to the beach to now you know ha- having that many eggs coming yeah. in and, so and they more- need there needs to be that many eggs, doesn't there, Roland? You know, so many of them, you know, within the first few weeks will will either be eaten or killed. Um, so we, so when you start taking those eggs um, for human consumption and a whole nest goes, then the knock-on effect to that is the few that are getting into the sea aren't going to survive. And before you know it, in quite a short period of time, the numbers can dwindle to next to nothing. Yeah, and uh, there's a uh, it's it's a very pronounced thing that happens because the generation time is about ten years. You can successfully harvest a hundred percent of the eggs for year after year after year and not see any difference. And then all right, and then all of a sudden, there's no been no recruitment into the population for ten years, and the population just disappears. Yeah, and you get this really sudden, dramatic crash, and everybody goes, "Oh, what, what, whoa, what's happened there?" Mm-hmm. You know, um, so it takes a long while to build that back up. Yeah. So yeah, I mean, it's a strategy that has worked for sea turtles for millions of years. Yeah. Produce lots of eggs over many, many years, and one, all you need is one to survive from yeah. each individual, right? And and the population will continue. So under natural conditions estimates say around one percent survivorship mm-hmm. but 1%, under natural yeah. conditions you also get 50 percent don't hatch mm-hmm. or are eaten before they get to the sea mm-hmm. yes because that's so, technically what they are it's a major part of the food chain mm-hmm. it is you know you the design you us, yeah it, it, that that's how this how the, the, the that particular part of the ecological web works and it, you know from again from a conservation point of view or from an animal lover's point of view it's oh you know only one percent survive that's really sad yeah it's feeding a lot of fish yeah yeah absolutely. well if, i mean so, if you look at it in a more like sort of retrospect way, you, I mean, you know you were saying earlier frogs are food to something else everything is food to something else really realistically and yeah absolutely absolutely t- baby so, turtles of that size are food to something else it's just you it's, know it, it's just how it is it is how it is. But by incubating the eggs in 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 a controlled environment, we get a ninety seven percent hatch rate instead of a fifty yeah. percent hatch which rate. You, which you need if the numbers are dwindling for <laughs> to whatever to, to, yeah. to recover the population. Mm-hmm. We also have an issue with that like ultimately the, the, the conservation aim would be to have nests 
being naturally incubated and not disturbing them. Yeah. But this particular beach is very heavily used by, by Guatemalans, one. We also have some evidence that is coming out from using data loggers. We work closely with um, Universidad del Valle, which is uh, one of the universities in the city. They have a project in collaboration with a Norwegian university, and they've been putting data loggers in the beach and in our artificial nests. Mm-hmm. And what we have found preliminarily is that the temperatures at certain points of the year in particular on the beach are getting to lethal levels mm-hmm. so if you left the nests in place they'd either be disturbed by human activity mm-hmm. or they the embryos would the die heat. and they would perish yeah. so we have to intervene we have to do something there's also there's also the the, the indirect effect as well that um yeah, when certain species of fish are um you know um fished for too much um you know yeah, if we're taking overfished. If we're, yeah overfished we're taking too many of certain species out of the water then predators have to go looking for something else yes and yeah. unfortunately yeah. sometimes that just means the little baby tails and and they're all getting eaten you know instead of one or two actually surviving like they should they're just disappearing you know like that and there's so many like indirect knock-on effects isn't there from from well what we do really yeah you 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 can't anticipate any of those i don't think how far along the line you know the effects does the chain happen yeah absolutely so one of the things that we we're supporting that that community project um so people can come and they will get involved in the day-to-day running of the tortugario but we're also going to be going out onto the beach and one of the things that hasn't happened yet is monitoring the adult populations of sea turtles Mm -hmm. so how many turtles are there is it a sustainable population Mm -hmm. where are they nesting the the nesting ecology of sea turtles is very complicated so you can't look at the number of um eggs and take an average of what's in a in a clutch which would be between 80 and 100 eggs per clutch mm-hmm. and go well okay so we divide the total number by 100 and that's how many nests we had therefore that's how many turtles there are it doesn't work quite like that because a no. female will lay two or three nests a year mm-hmm. and then not come back for three or four years in some mm-hmm. populations and yeah. we don't have that information for this population because nobody's ever monitored it yeah so yeah. without that side of things we can't properly assess just how successful yeah. this community project is, which it, and it clearly is successful. Yeah, and I, I feel we're getting more turtles each year, and 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 we're releasing more, and the incubation rates are getting better, mm-hmm. and and all of these things. But from uh, an ecology point of view and a, a conservation point of view, we need to translate that into well, how many turtles are there, and what are they mm-hmm. doing, and what can we do better. Facts. Yeah. Exactly right. So that's that's so people will, can come out and they can get involved in in that project as well, which is a really exciting thing to be around. That's awesome. So Roland, it, obviously, you know, we're going out to an audience of people who you know love this type of thing. Um, you know, out of you know our millions of listeners that we've got out there, um, probably not quite just yet, but. You know, it's recorded on a podcast that can be listened to in a year's time or whatever. But <laughs> the ones that are listening now, <laughs> how 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 would that if they feel inspired and think, do you know what, I would really like to be part of this? How how can they do that? 
Um, so they can, you know, we're, we're on all the social media. So we're on Facebook and Twitter and Instagram. So you can find us there where we put out loads of information about what we're up to and how you can get involved. You can go check out our website at explorewithindigo.com. And that's got all of the information about our upcoming expeditions and, and everything and how you can get involved in that, how, how you can contact us through there. Right, awesome. Right then, so on that note, it's time for bed. No, we've got one last thing just to ask. No, not, no, no we're not asking. It's hot, that, yeah. it's hot off the press, mate. Oh, go on then. You've been doing, we talked about the filming, but you've just recently, have you just filmed something with Nigel Marvin? I have, yes. Um, so that was an amazing experience and very unexpected. Um, so last year, it was in towards the end of October. I got a call from one of my colleagues um, in Guatemala saying, um, we're doing this film with, with Nigel about Guatemalan wildlife and, and, and what you could, you know, highlighting what, what wonders we have in this country. We need you to come out um, because he's going to be filming at Las Tuacamayas and we know that you've worked there for so long and you, you know it all. Um, we need you to come out next week. Oh, what okay let's do it um so you know nick the following monday i was on a plane out to guatemala and we 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 spent three days up at, at las Acamayas filming some amazing species up there i'm not going to give any spoilers um yeah. but um it it looks set to be an absolutely amazing film very entertaining because if anyone knows Nigel, you know, he's great in front of the camera yes. and um, he travels around all of the major kind of um, different ecosystems within Guatemala and stays at places that you can go and stay and highlights where they are. So it's kind of, it's this, the whole idea is not just here's the explorer going out and doing his thing is like, here's the explorer going out and doing his thing. Here are the people working in those areas and oh, wow. you can stay here and do it yourself how incredible which which is just absolutely amazing that is, um, that is cool and yeah, is that yeah. called wild guatemala it's with nigel marvin wild guatemala with nigel marvin um it will be on animal planet in the next couple of months i don't have an airing date yet yeah, to, um, to be honest mike I'm, I'm surprised you don't know that because isn't nigel marvin your cousin He's my uncle. Oh, your <laughs> uncle. Yeah, yeah. yeah he's my uncle. He's my uncle from my dad's side, though. <laughs> right. Okay, yeah. <laughs> um, uh, was you was you surprised how tall he was, Roland? Um, no, because I'd I'd met him before um, at a conference, so so we we we'd already Roland uh, Roland's six foot five across. anyway, so <laughs> six foot six, mate. Six foot six. That's, that, that's with that. He's high heels on. You are actually Dave Clemens, aren't you? <laughs> I, I was trying to. I was hoping you weren't going to notice, but you know, <laughs> okay, I'm just okay. trying to get onto your podcast again. <laughs> <laughs> right now, but, so, so, so Dave, it was absolutely amazing having you on the show. Um, everyone who's been listening, thanks for tuning in yet again for another weekly episode of Reptile and Chill. If you want to help support our podcast, please head on over to reptileandchill.com. Look up 
look at our hoodies and t-shirts for sale and for all those that did buy them during the month of january thank you for helping towards the australian bushfires um means a lot to us and it means a lot to many many other people mm-hmm. if you do want to follow us then check us out on facebook instagram twitter we don't like twitter and youtube at the handle of reptile and chill uh, i'm just going to stop saying twitter to be honest yeah, I think. Fuck, twitter. yeah. fuck twitter off just delete the account We're done <laughs> um, that is about it um, can, can I just say on behalf of us a uh, massive uh, thank you to the guest Roland tonight um, it's been really inspiring listening to you honestly mm-hmm. keep on doing what you're doing because it's really important um, and it sounds absolutely amazing and we are so freaking jealous yeah, yeah. <laughs> so jealous. You, should, you should come out and join us and thank oh, you know, don't. Thank, well, to, thanks to, for inviting to, me to on. be it's honest wonderful <laughs> I think you should all you should um, offer us a job. That's all I'm going to say. Um, and normally, I'll bear that in mind. Yeah, absolutely. No, normally, at the end of each podcast, we say "love you, bye." Um, but because we're jealous, I'm just going to say "fuck off." Oh, don't oh. be like that. <laughs> Thanks, mate. <laughs> Roland's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, pal. Uh, well, thank you too. Have a, uh, enjoy the rest of your evenings. Yes, and, and Roland. Yes, mate. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Love you, bye. Love you. Yeah.